Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everybody. It's March 28th, 2019, and it's time for my private audio call. Tonight, our special guest speaker is a gentleman by the name of E. Michael Jones, uh, PhD. He's a prolific writer. He's written over 30 books. Let me, sh- let me introduce him properly here. E. Michael Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of 30 books and ebooks, most recently, Baron Metal. A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. As well as hundreds of articles, he received his PhD in American Literature from Temple University in 1979. His dissertation was subsequently published as The Angel and the Machine, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Rational Psychology. He has taught in both Germany and the United States from fifth grade to university level. In addition to his writing and editing, Dr. Jones is a frequent lecturer to civic, corporate, and academic groups on the interface between morals and culture. He has spoken in India, Iran, Mexico, Kenya, England, Germany, Switzerland, Australia, the Czech Republic, Poland, and Estonia. His talk at Harvard University in the spring of 1992 on how the civil rights movement destroyed the black family was one of the most controversial of that academic year. In the fall of 2003, he gave a series of lectures in Kenya on African AIDS. In December 2013, he spoke in Warsaw, Rockla, Krakow, Torun, and Posen. I hope I didn't destroy those in the pronunciation. Those are in Poland, or that was in Poland, during a book tour announcing the Polish edition of Libido Domenandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, a book which influenced the subsequent pastoral of the Polish bishops condemning, condemning gender ideology. In February 2013, Dr. Jones addressed the third annual Hollywoodism conference in Tehran, and the following spring he spoke at the Technological University in Shiraz and before a standing room only crowd in the desert town of Faza. Dr. Jones is also a frequent commentator on <clears throat> excuse me, geopolitics and the Middle East for Press TV. In early 2015, Dr. Jones spent five weeks traveling and lecturing in India on the current rape crisis. His account of that trip is now available as an ebook on Kindle under the title Culture Wars in India. In the summer of 2016, he spent weeks in Tanzania doing research for the broken pump in Tanzania. Julius Nyre. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. And the collapse of development economics. In March 2017, gave a series of lectures in Argentina as part of the research that eventuated his in his book Pope Francis in Context. 
Dr. Jones is the father of five children. He has 18 grandchildren, the second oldest of which is now studying fine arts at Temple University. His youngest grandchild was born in July 2017. His name is Leo, and Dr. Jones refers to him as Leo the 18th. <laughs> Dr. Jones lives in South Bend, Indiana. He can be reached at jones at culturewars.com. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming on our call. I appreciate it. Thank so you. what what are you going to enlighten us with this evening? Well, uh, I just got back from Kenya. I was in Kenya again. I gave wow. the keynote address at a conference on Amoris Letizia, and then I spent a week in a shamba uh, actually 10 days on a shamba which is a little farm in western kenya so it allowed me to look at the uh, bring my economics uh, uh, back to uh, bear on this the whole experience i had in tanzania and uh, uh, look at the the problems there the poverty problems and come up with a solution i have the solution for poverty in africa there's only really? one one solution historically and that is the production of cloth that has that has led every every industrial economy in the in history began by producing cloth. Florence in the 15th century, England in the 18th century, America in the 19th century, the South uh, followed by that, uh, Japan in the 20th century, all the way up to China. China is the leading industrial power and they are the leading producer of cloth, and they got into being the greatest industrial power by the production of cloth. And this is precisely what is not happening in Africa because of one thing, the, the, uh, the Kenyans call it mitumba, it's the Swahili word for uh, used clothing. Used clothing has wrecked the economy in all of East Africa. And uh, the, you can have aid, all this aid gets poured into the country and it, the country just ends up being poorer and poorer and poorer because you've destroyed the basic ladder of wealth, uh, which is cloth production. That's really interesting. It's not something I would think. Uh, no, you most know. people don't. Most people <laughs> have big, elaborate, uh, complicated explanations but this is a very simple explanation. And so we've created a project uh, in Kenya to restore uh, cloth production. Uh, the, the, to, to show you the pernicious nature of what's going on there, the, the, I'm not the only guy who came to this conclusion. Every politician in East Africa came to the conclusion and they passed basically a ban on used cheap clothing. And as soon as they did that, the United States State Department came down on them and exerted pressure on them. Uh, uh, saying they would never, you can't export to the United States unless you cave in and do tow the free market uh, uh, line. And they all caved in except for Rwanda. Uh, only Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, has stuck to his guns here. So they know, I, the, the people in the State Department know what they're doing. They know that they are condemning Africa to poverty. And the sad story is that the Africans just caved in and accepted that. What, what do you mean used clothing? You, <laughs> I don't, I don't you're, understand. You're a goodwill box. Have you ever gone to a goodwill box? Sure. And you threw something in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't go to, uh, they go through it. If it's, if it's a good piece of clothing, you can get, I've seen uh, 
Harris tweed jacket. So if they see a Harris tweed jacket, that's valuable. They'll put it in their store. Everything else gets mm -hmm. sold to rag pickers from New Jersey. And they go, they go through this stuff. They buy it at five to eight cents a pound. Uh, they go through it. And if there's jeans there that are worn out and have holes in them, they will send them to Japan and the Japanese will pay $100 for them. Everything else will go to Africa. And everything, so every day in Mombasa and Dar es Salaam, a freighter pulls up in a 20-ton ball of T-shirts and junky clothes rolls off that, and it gets broken up, and these people spread out all throughout East Africa. I never uh, realized that, you know? I yeah. never thought of that. It's not like they're going to go into a department store and buy a shirt brand new, right? Well, the, no, the, you, you don't. most people don't know where this comes from, and no, most people don't know the effect that they have had of basically changing their, their clothing habits. Mm. They start off, it used to be you bought a decent suit. It used to be you had a suit made for you. It used to be, and this is Heinrich Pesch, the, the guy who inspired me to write the Baron Medal. He said in America, you couldn't tell the, you couldn't, uh, tell the difference between the man who owned the factory and the man who worked in the factory because they both wore suits. Mm. This was the custom here and it's been wrecked by cheap clothing here. I don't can't tell, can't tell you how many times I've gone to church and see people dressed in basketball uniforms or some type of sports clothing. I feel like going up to them and saying, do you play basketball in your suit? Well, then why are you coming to church in your basketball uniform? This has been uh, uh, basically what you're seeing here is the, the logification of clothing. Everybody wears something that has some type of message or brand on it because they want to associate with a winning team. And as a result, they're paying an exorbitant price for something that is very cheap and they get tired of it quickly. They throw it in the Goodwill box and it ends up in East Africa. Years ago, they used to give you the stuff to wear to promote the product. They gave it to you for free. You didn't have to buy it. Yeah. So Nobody now you buy something, pay money you're paying, for something. Go ahead. You're paying, you're paying to advertise for them. Right. So yeah. what, so so I met with so we go into uh, Bungoma. It's a very unattractive city, and it's no coincidence. It's obviously poverty all over the place, and this is where I saw more Mutumba than any place else in Africa. Literally, the whole marketplace is covered with used clothing, and people are pawing through it. And uh, uh, so, what what do I mean here? What what am I talking about? Well, I met with the chancellor of the diocese of uh, Bungoma, and he told me that his father paid for his schooling by growing cotton. There, He said, now there is not one cotton seed in Bungoma. This cheap clothing has wiped out cotton production pretty much in all of East Africa. It's one of the best places to grow cotton. It's not grown anymore. Now, if you can't grow cotton, you cannot create wealth. Now, because think of think of what we're talking about here. I have a, a custom-made suit. That suit, uh, let's say it weighs four pounds. It's really, it's fine wool. It's, it, I, have to, I have to make an admission here. It wasn't custom-made for me. <laughs> it was custom-made for a guy who became a priest who didn't need it anymore, and he gave it to me, okay? So it's a custom-made suit. It's four pounds of wool. Now, what's the difference between four pounds of wool off the sheep and four pounds of wool in a custom-made suit? Let's talk about price. You can get four pounds of wool for about $10. That custom-made suit costs 
What is the difference? The difference is human labor. At every stage of development there, every stage you have to take that wool and you got to get the seeds. You got to you got to card it. If it's cotton, you got to put it through a gin, get the seeds out of it. Then you have to make uh, yarn and then the yarn makes cloth and, and then the cloth makes clothing and you move up the chain until finally Brooks Brothers is charging you $1,200 for that suit. That is the creation of wealth. Every single country that has industrialized has begun with that chain of creating surplus value. You create no surplus value when you import t-shirts. There's a little bit of value with the rag pickers sort it. That's infinitesimal compared to the value that's added by what I just described. And so as a result, by, de by denying these people the ability to, to move up that value chain, you're denying them a, a, a decent standard of living and you're condemning into poverty. And that's the situation there right now. I see, I see that. How do you change it though? I mean, what do you do? <laughs> do you... I, have, I, I actually, I have the, the solution. Okay. You go we... in with a bunch of seeds and show them how to grow cotton. No, or... you have to, this, so the farmer has to grow, plant the cotton. And the only reason that we'll get the, he'll plant cotton is if he has a price that he can count on when he sells it. So how do you guarantee the price? Okay. And that's what I'm talking about. One of the great things you see there when you go places like this is there catholic schools all over the place and as they were in the 50s when i was in a catholic school every catholic school kid in kenya wears a uniform so i went to a school in bungoma the same city i just told you about uh and there's a, a priest who created a school 10 years ago he had 15 students he now has 1900 students and every one of those kids wears a school uniform so what I'm going to, what I'm doing, what I actually did uh, in, in a two dioceses was to say, look, you, let's make sure that these uniforms are made not with cheap cloth that you imported from China, but with native products here from farmers in Bungoma planting cotton. Let's begin there and let's guarantee them a decent price and let's guarantee the tailors a decent wage because this is a, in a guaranteed market. That's one school in one, in one diocese, and you've got basically 2,000 students. And if they all bought two uniforms, one in the wash and one to wear, that's 4,000 uniforms right there. And that's just one school. And I'm saying with this, we could create a beachhead because you can't buy a, a Catholic school uniform in a Matumba market. You can't do it. All you can buy are cheap t-shirts that say, I love New York, or Led Zeppelin reunion tour, 1982, or something like that. This is the way these people are dressing now, and they've got to break that habit. And I think the Catholic Church can help them break that habit. Wow. Yeah, I remember seeing old video of people in Africa, and I remember... All the women were wearing moo-moos. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, they must be getting stuff from Hawaii or something, right? Well, it, it could be. It could be they're just getting cheap junk from someplace else. But there was a time when uh, Kenya had its own garment industry. This is not in, you know, this was in uh, in the immediate post-colonial period, 1960, mm. let's say. I know a guy who arrived there. I met him. He arrived there in 1960. He said you couldn't buy a shirt when you rode, when you got into Nairobi. You went to a tailor and he made you a shirt. 
-hmm. He named you a custom-made shirt. Well, that's that's a lot of people. You got a lot of people involved in in doing that type of thing. This is a man who can earn a living. And that's the whole point of what we need to do here. What's that? Get everybody jobs? <laughs> Creating? This is the creation of jobs. Men can now get work if we start this garment industry. There will be men who can plant cotton. There will be men who can weave it. There can be men who tailor it. And this is the beginning of uh, uh, jobs and it's the beginning of prosperity because of the have you have you get uh, brought this to the church i mean what do they say yeah. about it two two dioceses are ready to do it and that's just wow. me talking to them i've written a report up the report of my whole trip and the whole situation in africa will appear in culture wars in the may issue Ooh. So it, you can, it, it'll be a much more uh, detail. I'm kind of giving you the, the elevator speech here, but if you, if you want to check out the details, it's all, it's going to be all in this report. They've already agreed. So it, it's time to, to do this because there's no other way. I mean, this is what, this is the benefit of having studied economic history. Barren metal is 1400 pages long. It's the entire history of capitalism. And it began with Florence and it began with cloth. The whole money economic economy in Europe was based on trading wool fabric. That was the beginning of the money economy. If if Germany and Italy can do it in the 15th century, Kenya can do it now. There's no other way to prosperity. No other way. Historically speaking, even the woman who wrote there's a woman who wrote a book called Travels of a T-shirt. She's totally dedicated to the principles of free trade. Even she has to admit that textile manufacturing is the ladder out of poverty. Everybody admits it, okay? But that's, so, so when they deny it, when the, when the United States State Department sanctions people from acting on this principle, that means that the United States State Department wants these people to be poor. Yeah. It's, it's no other conclusion you can come to. Well, that's the way it's been with everything in this government, isn't it? I mean, what you if you think back to the Bikini Atoll and when they were bombing those islands, what'd they do with those people? They displaced them all, and now they had to rely on welfare and the government for their you know necessities of life. Where before that, before they took out their islands, they were self-sufficient. They had a fishing right. industry. They were taking care of themselves. Everything was beautiful. But, you know, this is nothing new. That's what our government does. No, it, it, you're right. It's nothing new. The English uh, created the system of free trade in, through the 18th and 19th century. And basically, Kenya was supposed to be a place where you could go for cheap labor and cheap raw materials. And then you could take them, you finish them off in England, and you ship them back, and you have the people pay for finished products. The one thing you deny a colony is any type of manufacturing base. This is true of America, okay? America was in exactly that position. And what America did was erected tariffs over the course of the 19th century and created their own garment industry and basically <coughs> succeeded England. <coughs> there was a man by the name of Cabot Lowell. Talk about famous New England names. He went to England 
went toured a, 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 a weaving plant, one of the cotton plants in Manchester, memorized the machinery, came back to Manchester, New Hampshire, and rebuilt it. And at that point, he had the machinery, the technology, and they basically took the leadership of garment production away from the English by 1930. <clears throat> That's the whole story. The problem with this story is that it's all based on low wages. And once you base everything, you're, once you base the production on the lowest wages you can find, you're engaged in a race to the bottom. And yeah. that's what this whole story is. So the race is now in India. You know, we've got gap in India. I, I know uh, someone who works for the garment industry. Her boss employs 50,000 tailors. And gap is putting pressure on the Indians saying their wages are too high. The, oh the, 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 the classic example here is there's a T-shirt. T-shirt says girl power. It's like promoting feminism. It costs thirty nine dollars. It's produced it's produced by women in India who make forty eight cents an hour. That's the whole story in a nutshell. OK, yeah. and Gap is pressuring them to lower wages even more now. This is this is, this is a recipe for disaster, worldwide disaster. Yeah. Corporate greed. That's what it is. And that's, uh, you know, I remember when things used to be made in the USA and you used to be proud because it was built to last forever. And we don't build anything anymore. No, Not well, we certainly, we certainly, don't, <laughs> we certainly don't make clothes anymore. No. Or shoes. Yeah, that's for sure. This, I remember downtown LA or even in New York, the Jews, they called it the Schmata trade. Where they were doing all the, you know, sewing and manufacturing of garments and clothing, and you don't see that anymore. No, no, no. because because uh, for the uh, the constant search for lower wages. If there's one thing that got Donald Trump elected, from my point of view, it was the outsourcing of American industry. Because I was there in South Bend, the big the big applause line was when he talked about carrier air conditioning exporting its his its factory to Mexico. Mm. Nobody much did anything. As soon as he said that, everybody was up cheering. That's what got Donald Trump elected. Now, what, really? what God, I don't think that would. I I was not thinking. I thought he wanted everything to be made here and not there. Oh, he did. So, I mean, that's what he did. <laughs> I mean, he said. I'm going to stop Carrier from moving their plant to Mexico, and that's why they voted for. Oh it. yeah, good, yeah, yeah. You no, know, Trump is not in favor of uh, exporting jobs. No, no, that's right. not true. But the, the point here is, unless you make something, you're going to be poor, right. and and there's going to be a lag. Uh, and and at one point, you have what was left of what was an industrial job, and you're still getting a kind of a high wage. And suddenly, you go to Walmart, and the T-shirts are practically for nothing. So let's buy a bunch of T-shirts, and this is great because it's cheap. Well, sooner or later, you're not going even going to have enough money to do that because you're losing your job because you're not making anything anymore. That's the problem. Yeah, you're right. I I, I remember. Yeah, you know, I started thinking about this back when George Bush Sr. was in office, because it felt like he was liquidating America. Is what it felt like. You know, everything was getting sold off to the highest bidder, and nothing for the people. He was dismantling the corporations. It felt like. That was right. This was the era where Reagan and then Bush. 
the era of leverage buyouts, where mm -hmm. basically they would come in, they'd buy up a company, load it down with debt, steal the money and fees, the, co the company would then go belly up because it couldn't pay off the debt. This is how yeah. Mitt, Romney made all, Mitt Romney made all his money. He mm. would work Bain Capital and he was one of these vulture capitalists that would load companies down with debt. And then he'd go and say, I created jobs. No, you didn't, you killed jobs. Yeah. And then they sold off all the equipment and, and, and the infrastructure they sold off everything is it true that spain owns the um the um what do you call it down the freeway there the the, the toll road yeah, yeah it's a spanish yeah they sold that that was uh, mitch daniels that was his idea to raise money real fast well if if this company we the people paid the taxes to build those damn things and yeah. then they bring in a foreign company and we're going to pay them to use what we paid for it to build i did that angers me like you wouldn't believe and then here in long beach the chinese own long beach pretty much the docks over there where they're bringing the ships in and out they have a life lease on long beach yeah so we don't own par, uh, anything anymore. All the national forests and, and the parks and recreational places like the Grand Canyon, there are there are plaques that say that the United Nations is in charge of those. Now they own everything. Is that right? Is that good? Is that supposed to be? No, I don't well, think I so. Think, I think what, what, what the people realized were is that you had two parties working for the oligarchs. That's it. And nobody representing the people. And that's, that's why people voted for Trump. Now, whether yeah, I think I think he's just lost his mandate. I just don't see it. I mean, a few things I see, but it's it's become instead of America first, it became Israel first. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it may be that this this whole investigation that is now ended had a distorting effect on his administration. And he couldn't do things that he wanted to do, like uh, make peace with Russia instead of antagonizing. <laughs> yeah, really. I couldn't understand that. That blew my mind. I, don't these people want us to be friends with Russia? I mean, they were going no. back and forth like, oh, we've got to be enemies with them or else. You know, what are you crazy? Well, there's a certain group of people that need Russia as the enemy because if, if they don't have an enemy, we're going to start asking, well, why are we giving you so much money? <laughs> they have to rush to the front and say, we're protecting you from the Russians. Well, wait a minute. You're the ones who are antagonizing the Russians in the first place. You know? it's like the arsonists are all working for the fire department. Unfortunately, that's true. Let me see what's going on in here. Looking in. We have a chat room here. So... It says here they are killing all the white farmers in South Africa and it's resulted in food shortages because, well, those were the farmers. <laughs> Is that true? Are they killing the white one, farmers? One of the, one, of the, one of the differences uh, between places like Zimbabwe and Kenya is that Jomo Kenyatta did not kick out the white farmers. They, he let them keep their property. And so as a result, the people who knew how to run the farm still stayed there. Oh, and that, that saved them a lot of a lot of problems. Saved them a lot of problems. Yeah, uh, well, they can teach the others how to do it. Well, right? it takes it takes skill to run these farms, and these were the people that had the skills, and and uh, so they were integrated into the society. As I said before, that's not that's not the issue. The issue that's killing the economy is free trade, uh, specifically free trade in this cheap 
clothing. That's the, that's what's killing the place. Hmm. Well, but okay. So they have food. They have water. They have everything else they need. Well, I was on a sh I was on a shamba. I was it was a farm. I was staying on the farm, and mm -hmm. so they they're poor. It's it was like what what happened in Europe in the 14th century, 13th, 14th century. They had to move from a subsistence agricultural economy to a money economy. Uh, the only vehicle that they, they, they would allow that was the production of cloth that allowed manufacturing to come into existence. Kenya is in exactly that position. These people live on subsistence farms. They yeah. don't have any money. So the farm is doing okay, I guess. They, they grow corn. They get the corn ground at a local mill. They eat something called ugala, which is like a, a little bit like grits, except it's not gritty. It's like cornmeal paste. And that's the main staple of their diet. They have a chicken every now and then. They, they, this is, they, they, they can feed themselves. Okay, they're, they're surviving. But the problem here is they got all this surplus labor that they cannot put to use because there are no jobs. It's just subsistence farming. I see. Okay. Well, so uh, what? What's your projection for when this is going to get started? When do you think it might? start to show some change it's, start, it's starting now i've That's already gotten, i've gotten two dioceses to agree to it so i'm going i wrote the article i'm going to try and circulate the article now in kenya uh and then we'll see if we can get gain some type of momentum and then we'll start then we'll start doing it it's it's not it's not sending a man to a moon Okay, it just means you're going to, the uniforms are going to be made according to a different method that's going to benefit everyone. You've got a, in a sense a captive audience. You don't go, you don't buy the uniform. You enroll your kid in a school and then you have to buy the uniform. So we can intervene in the economy in that way. We have a market. Yeah. And then you get all the sewing machines going and. Well, they, they have they have uh, Catholic Relief Services has a microcredit operation, and they mm -hmm. talk about women buying sewing machines. Uh, there's no point in having a sewing machine unless you can sell your clothing to someone. Yeah. That's the problem. And this would provide a market for those people, so that it would make sense to buy a sewing machine or to uh, have a group of people that would put something together and have a whole uh, factory where you could start making the clothing again. Oh, why don't you just put a stop to anybody bringing in any used clothing? That would be incentive. <laughs> I know, but that's the whole point is you're running up against the United States of America demanding that you stop because they have this free trade ideology. All economists basically are, are slaves, mental slaves to this free trade ideology. It's just part of the condition of getting employment at a at a university, you have to support it because that's what the American empire wants you to support. So that's the, 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 the problem is you have to kind of liberate the mind of the people and say that they're, this is not achieving what you say it's achieving. You know, you can say it's bringing prosperity, but we all know the opposite. And we have to start acting on a way that will bring about this according to sound economic principles, not ideology. Mm, sounds like it should. You should. We should be just, you know, influencing the people to do for themselves and and to. That's the whole point. This yeah. is something they can do. There's yeah. something that you can't do. They can't do. 
there's some things that you need really sophisticated skills for. I mean, you know, this is not building a BMW. Oh, growing cotton ain't that difficult. <laughs> I mean, it, the point here is, though, that the cotton in Texas is so subsidized by by government uh, yeah. that these people cannot compete. They overproduce in Texas, which drives the world price of cotton down to the point where these people cannot make a living because it's so subsidized. The point there is let's stop competing on the international market and build local markets. Right. That way, you, you you your money will go into the economy, and the money will be recycled, and the people will have money to spend, and it will be oh, a, a, a right. Right. Yep. Well, how come you're not running for office? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> because I'm not a narcissist. Well, they kill you anyway. I mean, anybody that's decent and has the people in mind, you know, they just get rid of them. They kill them off. Seems well, like a certain level, certain level. I've, I'm way far from that level. My level is dynamic silence. Uh, but even <laughs> that's not working. Yeah, if they want you out of the picture, they'll eliminate you. That's what they do. That's right. You know, that's so. Right. But uh, it sounds like a good idea. What else are you working on? I'm doing a book on Logos. This is part of my Logos project. Logos. I wrote yeah. The Jewish Tell Revolutionary us. Spirit had to be had to use the word Logos to understand what the Jew was. Uh, uh, the Jews rebelled against when they killed Christ. They rebelled against Logos which is the order of the universe. And when you rebel against the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And that's the what they've been ever since. And that's the thesis of my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, hmm. which has been out for 10 years now. So wow. the, S the SPLC tried to destroy me 10 years ago. Oh, God, uh, I hate them. Oh, I hate them. All being anti-Semite. And now it looks as if they're in trouble. Morris Dees just had to, it was kicked out. Now the guy Cohen, who was head of it, is now moving. Uh, he, he resigned voluntarily. It looks as if they're in trouble, and I'm selling more books than ever. So Good. Good for you, Southern Poverty Law Center. I hate them. Everybody in our group hates them, so <laughs> I don't know anybody that likes them. Who likes no. them? But you, but you know what? They have like a $200 million fund. I think it's 500 by now, 500 oh million. I mean, they can, oh, I, I, who's they're, giving they're, them losing, they're losing lawsuits. So it's, uh, you can go through a lot of money with these big lawsuits. So uh, something, something's happening there. The, the rats are losing, leaving the ship. Well, it's about time. I mean, geez, have we not evolved? <laughs> They're like so backwards in their thinking. Oh, well, times are changing. I hope so. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. That's what yeah. I see. The whole the whole IPAC thing has changed now. That uh, it's become basically a Republican operation. It's not bipartisan anymore. The the Democrats are are boycotting the IPAC convention. So that's a step uh, in a direction that I don't think they wanted to take. But uh, that's the way history goes. You know, you can who is that? Who's IPAC? The American Israel Political Action Committee. 
Oh. They're having their big conference now in Washington. Every year they have a big conference. These are the people that, that control the um, Congress of the United States. The Israelites. That was the Federal Reserve. But I guess those are controlled by them too, so. Yeah, a lot of control here. Yeah. I want that to change. How do we get that to change? You have to explain what's happening. Nothing I mean, can have change until you have consciousness. You have to have an understanding of what is really happening. And then once that happens, people will come up with ways to change things. Oh, I don't know. You know, they people are so ignorant. They've been indoctrinated so, so much that it's like you try to talk to someone and they it's like it's like you're a vampire or something you know and, and they, they they put their hands up they don't want to hear it yeah i've i've lost all my family well because they don't like what i'm pursuing as far as truth and and the american dream and and how we're supposed to be you know well, I, I mean, money if you, be the first thing if you get out in front, if you get out in front of something and you're first guy to say it, there's going to be this a reaction of disbelief. But over a period of time, if if what you're saying is the truth, it catches on, and suddenly you got a lot of people who are thinking along the same lines. Yeah, there's a lot more now than there was back when I started, but I'm still waiting. I'm still well, waiting and <laughs> I'm going to be dead soon and then I won't see I've seen it happen. Yeah, well, there's if it doesn't happen, you have to wait. But I mean, I can see I can see the change. I can feel the change from the way it was 10 years ago. Really? Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, I I'm I'm not making it up. I'm I'm it's just there. It's happening. Yeah. And, well, and they're upset and the whole all of these, you know, now we got to pass international standards of anti-semitism these laws those laws that's a sign that they're losing control of the narrative when they have to enforce it like that hmm. it's not gonna last well i hope not i but we, we in our group we deal with usually we don't cover this topic but it's it's it fits with what we talk about but we're usually talking about uh the government court system you know the judicial system how screwed up it is and the irs and uh, local governments and how they're taking advantage of the people and they're just out there to generate revenue and and run you over pretty much is what we've been dealing with out here well, the problem here is that, that uh, we, it's called uh, regulatory capture. Basically, the people who are supposed to be regulated have captured the government, and they use the government to promote their ends rather than the common good. Yeah. The, government, the government is the only thing big enough to rein in the rich and the powerful. The problem is the rich and the powerful know that, and they use their money to gain control over the government. Right. So that's that, I mean, this is what I said. I was I was in Iran, you know, uh, they're all upset about the, the basically Trump reneging on the nuclear deal after they signed it and so on and so forth. I said, look, there are three reasons why you don't have a nuclear deal. Sheldon Adelson, Paul Singer and Bernard Marcus. They're three rich Jews who contributed to the Trump campaign and they control our foreign policy. 
we've we've <laughs> how did this happen well yeah. we we've, we've got to at least become aware of what has happened uh, so that we can kind of put our heads together and figure out how to make it unhappen any ideas <laughs> yeah. i i am in the business of making people aware yeah that's what i do as a writer that's what i've been doing and i i'm happy to collaborate with people who can come up with other solutions but uh the basis of any action has to be awareness first or consciousness that's what has to happen first if you don't know that there's what's wrong or who's causing what is wrong you can't propose any alternatives that simple well we blame the lawyers pretty much <laughs> right Come on, do you, do you want to take some questions from our audience, or do you want okay. to continue? Okay, okay, I got, I got to get off uh, soon, but let's have some, let's have some questions. Okay, if anybody has a question, press star two. That'll put your hand up. And uh, let me see here. Mm, takes a few minutes. If anybody has a question, press star two, and that'll put your hand up. Otherwise, uh, we can continue on or whatever you prefer. I got, uh, it's, we're almost up to an hour. I really, I got to get off. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Uh, and uh, good luck in what you're doing. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. I hope we can have you on again in the future and you can update us on what's new with what you're doing. I appreciate you giving us your time and energy and thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Jones. And we'll do it again, I hope, in the not too distant future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, that was uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Very uh, interesting fella. Uh, oh, in the stack. Now you have your hand up. Hear me? Hear 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.